Well, before we have our opening prayer, I'd like to read these words from Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Father, we know that our lives are in your hands. From birth to the moment of our passing on, we are always in your hands. Our, our very next breath is willed by you. We're so thankful, Lord, for the life that you give us. And your desire is ever for our being drawn into your presence, for our understanding who you are, for our submission to you that we might have life everlasting. We're so grateful for the gift that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. And Father, I pray that as your Spirit now dwells amongst us here this morning, that you will speak to each of our hearts. You know our individual needs, and I pray that you will reach down and touch us and convict us, Lord, in those areas where we um, need your cleansing and where we need correction, and those areas where we need encouragement, we pray for your touch. Just glorify yourself in our midst here this morning. Touch each life, Father, I pray. And as the word is proclaimed in the service and in each class this morning, we trust for your empowerment and for your grace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we've almost arrived at the end of 2 Samuel. We're in the 24th chapter. Verse 18, 2 Samuel 24, verse 18. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Arona looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arona went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arona, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. Well, again, reminding you of the setting, David has grievously sinned against the Lord, and the Lord has sent a plague on the land. The Lord did something very unusual in allowing David to choose his medicines, as it were, and, and the Lord gave him three options, you remember. 
And David chose the, short, chose the shortest option, which was three days of plague. And those three days of plague have been rampaging through the land, and we're looking at the, the tail end of it here as we read this count, uh, account here this morning. We don't know what the plague was. All we know was it was very virulent. It was very lethal. It killed 70,000 men. And as I mentioned to you before, unless the Lord is specifically saying, well, because you were counting your manpower, I'm going to show you how quickly you can lose your manpower. So he killed only men. Unless that were true, uh, I, I can hardly believe that if 70,000 men died, that 70,000 women or some similar number didn't die as well. And that would be very typical because frequently the scripture will list the men only in, in terms of numbers and not even count the women. As, for example, when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and went into the wilderness, it says 600,000 men, doesn't even count the women and children. So we just have to think that that's a possibility. Whatever the case is, it's a lot of people in just three days to die. All across the land, uh, they did this. And David is interceding with the Lord, saying, Lord, it's my fault. Why don't you put the blame on my shoulders? And, and so he came to this threshing floor where he interceded, and now the Lord has sent the prophet Gad to David and told him to go back up to the threshing floor and build an altar there. And that is the scenario that we read. As I pointed out to you last time, and I don't know what happened to all my tables here this morning. I had to ferret this one out of, a, of another room. Uh, so I didn't get a chance to set the overhead up. But if you can picture in your mind the city of Jerusalem as it was in that day, it was a very, very small city on, sitting on top of a promontory, just a few acres in size, that immediately north of it, immediately north, is, is a larger area, roughly rectangular in shape, which is the top of Mount Moriah. And it is to that area that David had gone. As I mentioned to you last time, it was about 1,500 feet north of this northern gate of the city to the threshing floor, approximately, and, and a few hundred feet higher in elevation, maybe two, 300 feet higher in elevation. That's why it says, around and look down upon David as he was coming up. And so you can get a sense of change in elevation there. And if you ever get to go to Jerusalem, some of you have been there, but if you stand on the Mount of Olives and look westward back at the city, you'll, you'll see, of course, the temple platform out there with the Dome of the Rock sitting right in the middle of it and, and the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque with the Silver Dome sitting on the south side of the, of the temple area there. If you look further to the left, you'll notice there's a sloping area of mostly ruins going down to the left. That's the David, Davidic city we're talking about, the old Jebusite city. It's not even in Jerusalem today in terms of, well, I should say it's not in the walled part of uh, Jerusalem. It's outside uh, the wall part. And uh, for the most part, it's not even built on. So it had fallen into ruins, and the city had moved further to the north. And so it is there that David has come to uh, make this sacrifice to the Lord, to build an altar there. And what the scripture tells us in this passage is that David paid 50 shekels of silver for the oxen, the sledges, the yoke, and the threshing floor. Now, the current value of silver, that is if you were to go out and buy silver bullion, you'd pay $4.50 a troy ounce for it. Converting this 50 shekels into, into troy silver, that's about 100 bucks, roughly. But we're not talking about a hundred bucks buying power today as compared to that in, in that day. 
uh, this 50 shek shekels of silver in that day would have bought an immensely more, more than 100 bucks will buy today. As you know, 100 bucks doesn't buy much of anything uh, today. But in that time, you, you have to figure, a shekel of silver was worth an adult sheep. So you could buy a herd of 50 sheep for 50 shekels of silver. Now, I don't know what sheep sell for today, but I'm sure you have a hard time buying an adult sheep for even 100 bucks, I would think. So we're looking at uh, much, much more money because he not only is buying the threshing floor, which would have been an area mm, larger than the floor of this room, but you're buying a set of oxen, the sledge, which is drug around on the grain and causes it to be threshed, and the yoke, which yokes the oxen together. That's like buying the farmer's tractor and plow or something, you know. And, and so if you convert it into that kind of thinking, you're, you know, you're talking about thousands of dollars equivalent in that particular society. Silver was much, much more scarce in those days than it is today because the New World hadn't been discovered. The leading silver-producing countries in the world today are all in the New World. Mexico, Peru, and the United States are the big producers of silver. And of course, it's also produced in Russia and South Africa and other places as well. So it wasn't as abundant as it is, uh, is today. In fact, those who have studied this say that the ratio between the purchasing power of gold and silver was 13 to 1 then. Do you know what the ratio is between silver and gold today? Well, it's, it's actually 80 to 1. 80 to 1. Now, 100 years ago in this country, there was a law, or at least they tried to get a law passed, that would establish silver to gold at 16 to 1. Silver miners were behind that law. <laughs> but it's, it's 80 to 1. In that time, it was 13 to 1, roughly, as best as they can estimate it. And so silver was worth much more than it is today. Now, if you turn to First Chronicles, we won't do it at this point. But if you turn to 1 Chronicles, the 21st chapter, the 25th verse, you'll read that it says, David paid 600 shekels of gold for the land surrounding the threshing floor, which would eventually become the temple site. So he paid 50 shekels of silver for what? The threshing floor and the oxen. He paid 600 shekels of gold for what? The whole top of Mount Moriah, which is roughly the temple area today. Many, many acres. Of, of ground, you know, a dozen or so acres of ground. Now, if you convert 600 shekels of gold into modern terminology, you're looking at $85,000. Now, that seems a little bit more in line with uh, what we might think about. In fact, if you've ever gone over to Israel and looked at the land, you'd say, I wouldn't give you 850 bucks <laughs> for 10 acres of this stuff, you know. It looks like they grow rocks in Israel more than anything else. <laughs> But actually, the, the value of land is, is fairly high because there's a lot of population pressure uh, against it. In verse 25 of this passage, we read that David built an altar. And there on that altar, he offered a burnt offering and the communal peace offering. We're told that the Lord accepted the offering and he accepted the intercessory prayers of David and he brought an end to the plague. God terminated the plague as a result of David's intercession. In effect, God was declaring, my justice has been fulfilled. The offering and the intercessory prayer has satisfied my justice. 
and so the plague was brought to an end. Let's turn for a moment to the 21st chapter of First Chronicles, because it gives us a little more detail about this. First Chronicles chapter 21, reading at verse 26. Then David built an altar to the Lord there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Notice, Samuel, the author of Samuel, doesn't even mention that God sent fire out of heaven, a la Elijah, and, and began the offering, the fire that would burn the offerings. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into the sheath. Now remember from the previous passage, we had seen that David witnessed an angel standing, well, actually in, suspended in air between the earth and heaven with his sword stretched out towards Jerusalem. And this is the angel that is being referred to. The Lord told him, put the sword back into his sheath. And that, of course, signified the end of the plague. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, now remember we mentioned last time that Ornan is the Hebrew a rendition of Arona, which is a Jebusite name, uh, he offered sacrifice there for the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David had sinned grievously against the Lord. He had chosen to take God's glory for himself. Rather than trusting and honoring God for the great empire that he had built, he is considering the vastness of his power by numbering his men and discovering what kind of an army can I launch? But he repents because God has convicted him of his sin and he trusts in God. And although devastating consequences had ravaged the land, at least 70,000 had died in just three days, a great blessing came out of all of this for Israel. How often do we see in Scripture that out of the midst of tragedy, God will raise up something beautiful? And here on this site, where David has offered an offering and pled with the Lord to end this great plague. It is on that site that where David interceded for his people that God would order the temple of the Lord to be built. The great temple of the Lord would be built on that site. And so what we see here is that God didn't just say, okay, now where do I want my temple? You know, there. This was not a randomly chosen site, but was selected because it was a site of intercession. It was a site of the outpouring of God's mercy. And it was not at all a coincidence that it was also the site where God had supplied to Abraham a ram when he was there to offer his son Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. Little did Abraham know that the spot he had been told to go would one day be the place that would be made holy by the placement of the temple of the Lord God on that very site. 
In order for us to bridge the gap, our, our goal is to, is to move on into the books of the kings. Again, the kings, like, like Samuel and Chronicles, were originally a single scroll, a single work. Before we do that, we need to, to leap from the end of 24 here to Chronicles without leaving a gap in between. And, and Samuel does not fill that gap, but Chronicles does. We're not going to go through the whole uh, book of 1 Chronicles, just uh, some passages in it. 1 Chronicles is roughly parallel to the books of Samuel. 2 Chronicles is parallel to 1 and 2 Kings. The two, the two Chronicles tell roughly the same stories that Samuel and Kings tells. However, in the case of Chronicles, the chronicler much more focused on the spiritual aspect of everything than did the writer of Samuel and the writer of Kings. On top of that, what is us? And I'd read a passage in chapter 21. Let's look at chapter 22 of First Chronicles. And I'd like to read the first five verses of First Chronicles 22. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared huge quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps, and more bronze than could be weighed, and timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Sidonians and the Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. It's hard for us in our particular position to really understand how famous the Temple of Solomon would actually become in the ancient world. Because it has been gone so long that nobody has any remembrance of it, of course, and all we have are the descriptions given to us in Scripture, really. Because the Temple of Solomon was destroyed early on in the 6th century before Christ. So it's been gone for 2,500 years. And yet, at the height of its glory, there was probably almost no land anywhere around from Asia Minor north to Egypt in the south to Mesopotamia in the east that did not know about that great temple. And I have to believe in the faithfulness of God that, that He called people out of those lands to come there who came to know the Lord, just like the Ethiopian eunuch whom we meet as we read in the book of Acts. Where in the world did this Ethiopian eunuch come from? Well, he didn't come there because he'd heard of Jesus Christ. He came there because he wanted to worship at the temple of Yahweh, and he was from Ethiopia. And so we have to extrapolate, I think, from that, that there probably were people who came down from modern-day Turkey, that area, people who came from Iraq and Persia. Where did the three magi come from? Well, at least from Iraq, maybe from Iran. And, and so people were drawn to this worship center. Why? Because... The Lord God is the true and the living God. And he calls unto himself those whom he has prepared. 
And so this temple will become exceedingly famous. Almost all of us have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, but you know, that they were reasonably famous. Many consider them one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But we, do we really know what they look like? No. no. How far and wide was their fame? We don't know. Uh, they weren't built till basically the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. And so there was no you know, comparison there. It is not specifically stated in this passage or in, in 2 Samuel, but we have to assume, I think, that somehow God made it clear, maybe through the angel, that this spot, David, where you have built this altar and where you've made this offering, is the spot where I want my temple built. See, God had never speci specified before. He had said to Israel before when they were moving around that I will choose the place of the placement of my temple. In the meantime, you have a tabernacle, move it around here and there. But where will the permanent temple be? No one knew until this moment of revelation as a result of a tragedy that swept across Israel, as a result of David's sin. <laughs> How God works, it's just utterly amazing. You know, anybody who thinks that we've got to get good enough before God will come is totally ignorant of Scripture because there isn't any way you and I can be good enough for God to come and, and minister to us. He comes to us in the midst of our sin and tragedy, calls us to repentance and then brings great glory and wonderful things. And just as he did here, David knew his time would be short because he had been already on the throne for the better part of 40 years uh, by this time. And so he moved quickly to gather the materials for the construction of the great temple. And he commanded the Canaanites, now it says foreigners, what that means here is that the people who were still living in the land, <laughs> it'd be like the modern Israelites today referring to the Palestinians as foreigners. You know, the same kind of feeling would be. The people he's referring to weren't foreigners at all in the sense that they were outsiders coming into the land because they were there before Israel came. But they were the people who were allowed to remain in the land during the conquest because of Joshua's kind of mistakes here and there along the way. And so they were told, well, you can remain in the land, but you will be hewers of wood and water carriers to us. You will serve us. And so now their opportunity to really serve is, uh, has come up. These people are going to be put to work as laborers in gathering the materials that we're reading about here. I mean, we're, we're talking about enormous numbers here. You can be surprised at the size of the numbers, you know, quantities of material we're going to be talking about here. And also as hewers of stone, squares of stone. Now, I don't know. I've never tried to get out there and and uh, do masonry and, and carve a big block of stone into a square, uh, but I think it's a lot of work. And it's probably not too uh, easy a task to do. And so these are the people that are going to be put into this activity. Scripture tells us that iron and bronze and cedar are also collected. And the cedar comes from the, the forests of the cedars of Lebanon. If you know, the modern Lebanon flag has a cedar tree on it. There aren't very many cedar trees left in the forests of Lebanon today. Those that are left are, they're, they're protected, you know. I mean, you, you chop a tree down and you forfeited your life kind of idea. But in those days, there were massive forests of cedars and cypresses all over the Lebanon and the Anti-Lebanon uh, range. There's two parallel ranges that, that run up through what is today uh, modern Lebanon. 
And so the Phoenicians will, will harvest those trees and bring them down. And we'll, we'll talk later about how they did that when we deal with some of those, uh, those details. And David here explains his haste. He says in verse 5, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced. The house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, glorious throughout the land. Now therefore, I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. <laughs> David knew that his, the time of the end was, was coming soon for him. And so he's in a hurry. David wants to make sure that this temple will be built. And he don't want to give Solomon any excuse for not building it. It's like, as we're going to see, here's all the materials and here's the blueprint. And even then, Solomon takes years before he gets around to it. Have you ever discovered how hard it is for you to transfer your vision to someone else? How difficult it is? God gives you a vision. How do you give that vision to somebody else? I don't think you can. I think only God can do that. And it seems it takes a while before that vision gets into Solomon's mind and into his heart here. Well, let's, let's read on here in Second, First Chronicles 22, verse 6. Then he called for Solomon, his son Solomon, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be called Solomon, which means man of peace. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God, just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now behold, with great pains, I have prepared for the house of Israel 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver. Remember, a talent is somewhere between 66 and 75 pounds. And bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stonecutters and masons of stone and carpenters, and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of, the, of God into the house that will be built for the name of the Lord. Imagine 
it'd be a con contractor's dream. The sky's the limit. Everything you need is here. Just do it. And if you need more, we'll get it. <laughs> no worry about a budget. Just do it. David began stockpiling the building materials. And when he did so, he summoned his son Solomon to receive the charge from him to build this building. Here's the stuff, son. I want you to build a temple with it. David made it very clear that it had been his desire, was David's deep heart desire to build the temple himself. After God had done all that God had done, and God had created this great empire, the greatest empire in the history of Israel, and David ruled over it. David's greatest heart desire was to, was to glorify God and to thank Him by building this, this, this great temple where God would be worshipped and where His name would be centered and where the Ark of the Covenant would be housed. This was his dream, this, his greatest desire. But God had forbidden him to do so because he had been a warrior and been responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of men. David's words here that we read in, in verses 7 through 10 where he's talking about uh, his conversation with God, talking to Solomon about it, is based on the Davidic covenant. And I thought we should remind ourselves of the Davidic covenant again, looking back at the seventh chapter of, of 2 Samuel, part, part of it anyway, where God made a covenant with David. And he said these words in verses 12 and 13 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David has known. Before Solomon was even born, David knew that he wouldn't build the temple, but that God would raise up his son to do so. But that didn't stop David from having it as his dream and being willing to do absolutely everything he could to prepare for that moment in terms of determining the site and providing the construction materials. And it took almost till the end of his life before the site was isolated and specified. And yet now he's in a hurry to gather all this building material. Concerning David's disqualification as temple builder because of his many years of bloodshed, the famous Old Testament commentators Kyle and Delich write this, the kingdom of God is in essence a kingdom of peace. And battle or war or struggle are only means for the restoration of peace, the reconciliation of mankind with God after the conquest of sin and all that is hostile to God in this world. David, therefore, the man of war, was not to build the temple, but his son. And to him the Lord will give peace from all his enemies so that he will be a man of peace. It's not a verse, it's a quotation from Kylan Delich. They're 19th century German commentators that have got this big set of commentaries on just the Old Testament. David proclaimed to Solomon 
that the Lord will be with you, Solomon. It's not like you have to go out and figure it all out by yourself. The Lord will be with you. The Lord will guide you. The Lord will help you. Just as he had promised before you were ever born, son. Furthermore, David promised that the Lord would give to Solomon discretion and understanding so that he will be successful in his rule over Israel and to keep the law of the Lord. It's amazing how David passes on to Solomon such great wisdom. And of course, it is Solomon who then turns around and writes most of the Proverbs. So you can understand that David kind of, got, I mean, Solomon kind of got a start from David's submission to the Lord and submission to the law of the Lord. And this set the, the, the path for Solomon to follow. David says that if Solomon made every effort to obey the law of the Lord as it had been given to Israel by Moses, that the Lord will do something else for you, Solomon. He'll give you prosperity. But of course, most of us have read ahead. And we know that when Solomon has that great encounter with the Lord, God not only gives him prosperity, but gives him virtually everything that he could possibly dream of having as a king. I think, though, what we have to realize is David is speaking to Solomon here with great urgency and great emotion in his words. He's the old king. He's about to pass off the scene. And he wants his son and successor to be strong and courageous. And he says to him, do not fear or be dismayed. How many times have we read that in the transfer of power, right? As God speaks to Joshua, and then as Joshua transfers it on to the next, you, you keep hearing these words, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. Why? Because the unchanging God travels right through the whole of it. We, you know, I, I keep viewing life uh, as, you know, a long conveyor belt, and some of us are at the beginning of the conveyor belt, and some of us are about ready to go off the other end of the conveyor belt. But through this whole process, God is unchanging. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and even though David's about to go and Solomon is young, it doesn't matter. The same God is ruler, unchanging over all that he has commanded to be done. And so David can rest assured that he's turning over to Solomon a work which will be done because God will see that it will be done. Through his long life of incredible success and hideous failure, David had found the Lord to be just and fair, miraculously merciful. Ever think about it that way? Miraculously merciful. Quick to bless, just as quick to bless as he is to discipline. Always trustworthy and consistently working for our present and future good. God is always working for our good. Sometimes we don't see it, but that's what he is doing. And so David is saying to Solomon, therefore you have absolutely no reason to fear or be dismayed, and you have every reason to be strong and courageous. Because as it says elsewhere in Scripture, if the Lord be for us, who can stand against us? David explained to Solomon that he had put out a great effort to gather all this building material for the temple. 
100,000 talents of gold. Think about it for a minute. 100,000 talents of gold. One, let's be conservative. 100,000 times 66 pounds times 12 troy ounces per pound times $360, which is what the value of gold is today. And you're looking at $28 billion in the current value of that amount of gold. One million talents of silver translates into about a mere three and a half billion. But think about it. When I was a kid, my father had this iron block. I forget what he had it for. It was for pressing things. And it was an iron block and a little handle in it. And it you know, always fun picking this thing up. It weighed 50 pounds and it was just a small little iron block. And gold is more dense than, than iron. So six, a talent of gold was probably only about so big. It wasn't all that big. Can you imagine picking it up? Probably had no handle on it, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't like a massive amount in terms of, of volume, but of course in terms of weight, we're talking about an enormous amount of weight here. Iron and bronze and timber in no limit. Unlimited amounts, vast amounts. And by the way, that's not so simple. In those days, bronze was not all that easy to acquire and iron was even less easy to acquire. So we're talking about high cost items here. And he would not only have no lock in building materials, but David had already prepared for the workmen, not only the grunts to go out there and do the heavy work, but for the skilled laborers who could work the stone and work the gold and work the silver because everything was going to be plated in gold and silver. Not everything, but the interior of the, of the uh, great temple would be plated in gold and silver and vast implements. All the implements would be made new except for the Ark of the Covenant. And it was, I mean, talk about a piece, you've probably heard of the famous Amber Room that uh, disappeared during World War II from uh, Kaliningrad. They've made a, a full-scale replica of it uh, today. And you know, it's a, it's a very beautiful thing and, and it's worth millions, but compared to the Temple of Solomon, yeah, piece of change. Uh, in comparison. This, this would have been a multi-billion dollar building. Well, I think I had better leave it there.